Hello, and thanks for tuning in today. I'm excited to be connecting with you again, as it's been a while since I've recorded a new episode. We are going to be chatting with Dr. Carla DiGirolamo about all things stress, the good, the bad, and the ugly. This topic was inspired by a recent episode in which Dr. DiGirolamo mentioned that stress management is one of the top things on her list of lifestyle-based strategies for better health. This comment made me want to better understand the role of stress in health and what we can do to manage it. Our conversation focuses primarily on midlife health, particularly in women, as this is Dr. DiGirolamo's area of expertise. She has a PhD in molecular pathobiology and is double board certified in reproductive endocrinology and obstetrics and gynecology. She currently works in a fertility clinic and as a menopause specialist. Dr. DiGirolamo is also an avid fitness enthusiast, a certified CrossFit trainer, and a nutrition coach. I hope that you enjoy our conversation and that perhaps it motivates you to give stress the attention it deserves in your life. Welcome to Get Real Health. I'm your host, Dr. Chana Davis. This show cuts through the noise to give you science-based insights from real experts so that you can make smart, healthy choices. Welcome back to the show, Dr. Carla DiGirolamo. Well, thank you, Shauna, for having me again. It's a pleasure to be here. And I'm so glad that you accepted my invitation to come back again, because there's something you said in our last conversation that I just really wanted to explore more deeply, and that is the importance of stress in optimal health and well-being. And this was the first thing that came out of your mouth when we segued into that aspect of the conversation. So I would love to hear to get us started. How did stress come to be on your radar as such an important aspect of health and well-being? So I've been a fertility specialist for about 17 years now, and there is an inextricable link between stress and reproduction, which is the basis of human of, of female human physiology. And The reason is rooted very deep in evolution. We see these conserved pathways in females in the animal kingdom where they have fertile times when they are not in a time of the season where they're being preyed upon by other animals and they can't reproduce during these times. And then when it is no longer the prey season, they can resume ovulation and implantation. And so this is very highly conserved and the purpose of it is to A, survive and B, perpetuate the species. So very, very, very strong mechanisms and they hold true in humans too. It's so many times, you know, people come in to me as a fertility specialist, you know, wanting to get pregnant, struggling to get pregnant. And of course, they're stressed by this. But any any fertility specialist who's been doing this a length of time has a million stories about, you know, the people that just give up after going through five years of fertility treatment and bam, they get pregnant. That's very, very common. We see it all the time. And the reason is because the physiology of the stress response temporarily shuts down the reproductive axis so that you can fend off the threat. And so that's how it impacts reproduction. And that carries over into health and fitness as well. So the body perceives physical activity. It is a type of stress. It is a type of threat. It's a task that the body needs to complete. And in order to complete that task, you have to ramp up your heart rate. You got to ramp up your blood flow, your respiration, and your adrenaline hormones to complete that task. And then when it's completed, it comes back to normal. So it's very pervasive. And because of the link between the endocrine stress pathway and the female reproductive pathway, it really, really does impact our existence very globally. I love that you raise the 
the why, the evolutionary context behind the reason we respond in certain in ways to certain stressors. Yeah, no, we absolutely do. And uh, it impacts us more than we think it does. I think the most common thing I see as a fitness professional is the physical stress caused by not fueling enough. You know, I have a lot of midlife women that are panicking about the body composition changes that they're seeing. Many of them are athletes, avid recreationals, or even elite athletes that are training all the time. And the knee-jerk reaction is to train more and eat less. Mm -hmm. And so what happens is the body now thinks it's starving. That is a stress. That is a threat, a very primal one. And so hormone pathways turn on to try to conserve fuel, to try to conserve fat. And so the body compositions are made even worse. So this is a very common thing, not just in midlife women, but we see it in younger athletes as well. You know, the body image issues um, that come when we're younger and when we're older, they, they follow us throughout our lives, can lead to some behaviors mm -hmm. that can result in that kind of stress. And the body reacts to it in the same way it would react if there was a bear in the woods that was ready to pounce and attack you. The physiology doesn't know the difference. Right. So that's where I wanted to go next is to lay some foundations of understanding like the word stress is, is sort of an umbrella term. And when I think about it, I think, you know, one way to separate is there's short-term stressors and longer-term stressors or chronic stressors. There's mental, like I feel anxious, and then there's physical you know, you working really hard or starvation. So those that study the stress field, how do they separate the different types of stress? And is there a mechanistic basis for that? Well, what I can tell you is from my lens as a reproductive specialist or as an endocrine specialist and as a fitness professional, the way I parse out the stress is what you just mentioned is long-term and short-term. So what the stress response is designed to do is to ramp up the body to deal with the threat. And then when the threat is resolved, it comes back down to normal because the body can't sustain the hormone production and the physiological response required to resolve the threat over the long term. This is a short-term thing. And what happens is, is the response, all the things that get ramped up come back to baseline, and that's when healing and recovery occurs to prepare you for a future threat down the road. So when we think about training and exercise, this is a critical component, is recovery. And the whole reason why recovery is important is because that stress response needs to get back to baseline so that you can heal. Now, when we talk about chronic stress, and this is like life stressors, this is terrible relationships we might be in. Maybe it's a couple that is pending divorce. It's grief and loss. Maybe you, God forbid, lose a parent or someone close to you. Alcoholism, substance abuse. These are things that keep the stress response activated. And when the stress response is activated over the long period, it actually is very catabolic to the body because the body can't sustain that. It's just too much load on the body for a long period of time. And so it never can recover. It never can return back to baseline. So a dysfunctional stress response is when there's a continuous stressor all the time, all the time, and the response can't get back to normal. Whereas as mm -hmm. like training, a training session is your body is under a very specific stress and then it comes back to normal so that you can recover. That makes sense. And in terms of commonalities, are, are you suggesting that in terms of acute stressors, a lot of them actually 
that might appear different superficially actually activate the same internal biology, whether it's something kind of mental where you're feeling stressed versus a physical, something like under eating. How do you think about this from a pathways perspective, I guess? So I'm sure that the researchers who do this day in and day out where they're just studying the biology of the stress response could probably categorize this into a million different things. But when we think about it from a functional perspective, so when we zone out a little bit, when we're not drilling down into the weeds, but when we're taking a broader view, it's really much simpler than that. Think about, you know, when you're scared, if you're out running and there is a dog that's charging you as you're going on your run, you feel it, you know, or when you slam on the brakes in your car because you have to stop short, you feel that adrenaline rush. Mm -hmm. Your body sees the threat. It's the same way, whether it's a bear in the woods, whether it's the adrenaline rush, whether it's anything else, the response is being activated. And then once it's activated, it's the same pathways. So the body doesn't really make the distinction about the type of stress, whether it's a bear or whether it's, you know, stopping short in your car, it's more, is this a long-term stress or is this a short-term stress? And that's Mm -hmm. what differences in the physiology of how the body responds. Mm -hmm. And so what do you see when you have chronic stress, maybe starting to get into some of the links between health and stress? So how do we know that this actually is impacting people and their health and their well-being besides just, I feel it. So that more depends, like what it looks like, that now is more dependent on the type of stressor, how it manifests. So you have the stressor, you have the body's response to it, and then it's how the individual person perceives that. So one of the most common ongoing or chronic stressors that I deal with is low energy availability. And so in my clients who have low energy availability, who happen to be midlife, that presentation or those symptoms happen to be very similar to the symptoms of menopause. You get brain fog, you get fatigue, sleep disturbance, mood disturbance, those can all be low energy availability and it can also be menopause. In say a younger individual, say you as a reproductive age woman, like I have this client who came to see me who is a naval officer and she's training for a special forces position in the Navy. And she was overtraining and underfueling. And what this looked like in her case was that She had difficulty concentrating at certain times during the day. She had difficulty sleeping. She had multiple stress fractures. That's how she presented, basically with the physical problems and for her, the predominant symptoms, memory and the brain fog. So every circumstance looks a little bit different depending on the type of stressor. Chronic alcoholism, you know, that sleep, mood, depression, that has a lot of mood disorders associated with it. So it depends. Right. So if it's, is my relationship affecting my health? It's not really a simple answer that if you have this symptom, then that stress is probably impacting you. I I guess I'm just wondering, yeah, how do you unpack and figure out to what extent stress is contributing to the burden of chronic disease in society, that kind of thing. And it's obviously a very tricky thing to study. It is. It's really, as a physician, it's a long conversation with my patient. I'm a real purist when it comes to medicine that 90% of your diagnosis is going to come from what the patient tells you. So you really have to have the time 
in your consultation schedule to say, okay, we're going to sit and talk about these issues because that's really where you're going to drill down and, and get to it. So, you know, it's conversation. And if you're somebody listening to this podcast and you're trying to figure out for yourself, it's really sitting back and taking an honest look at what you're experiencing. You know, you sit there, you ask yourself, well, am I as happy as I could be? Am I sleeping properly? How am I eating? Am I eating overly in response to my moods or, you know, have I lost enjoyment in certain things? Am I getting injured? Am I not recovering? You know, so people listening to this podcast, not sitting in front of a a physician or a trainer can ask themselves those questions and do that introspection themselves. So what are some of the strategies that you recommend for alleviating stress? I'm sure there is a whole range of approaches, but what have you seen work well and what have you seen in the literature? Getting to the root cause of the stress is the first thing. You have to figure out, well, what is the problem? And like I mentioned with my clients and patients who are in low energy availability, the first thing I do is send them for nutrition consult. And, you know, everybody says, oh, I eat really well. And it's like, you got to have somebody else take a look at it because they may be seeing things that you don't see. So someone else can very objectively look at nutrition. So in those patients, nutrition is key. In other patients, you know, meditation is very helpful. You know, if you're one of those people that is laying in bed at night thinking about every event that happened during the day and every event that's going to happen tomorrow, there are great meditation strategies to try to alleviate that. There's great stuff online. There are some good apps out there that can help you turn the brain off and just be present and be in the moment. Yoga is great for this as well. I like to do this myself. You know, if I've had a difficult week, I usually do my yoga at the end of the week and that's my time. That is my time where I shut the doors. I tell everybody to stay away. And that's my time to be present and not dealing with the dog barking and my son wanting something and, you know, everything else. So you got to make that time and you got to take it for yourself because you deserve it. So that's huge. Yeah, I have to say on the mindfulness when it has this, the word somehow for me evokes pseudoscience, but I've seen a lot of people that I really respect speaking highly of it and relying on it. And so it's not something that I want to dismiss at all. It sounds like you really need to give it a fair chance before dismissing it just because it sounds sort of wooey. Yeah. I mean, wooey is what you need sometimes in the midst of all your chaos, you know, something that you need to focus your mind on and, and turn your brain off. And there is literature out there in support of that. Acupuncture. Mm-hmm. This is huge. Our fertility center has acupuncturists that work with us to help our patients, you know, relax and get their stress response under control. Honestly, really doing something you love. A lot of people find solace in running. A lot of the marathoners that I take care of, well, I'll describe, oh, I just needed to go out for that meditative run, you know, and they go out and they run and they feel so much better when they come back. Some people like to sit and read. Some people like to go for a massage. So really it's asking yourself, okay, what do I really love to do? What brings me to my happy place? Visualization is something that helps to calm the stress response. For me, I do this when I'm on an airplane. I have a lot of flight anxiety when I fly. And so what I employ is visualization of what is the end point? Where am I going? What do I look forward to doing? You know, imagine myself as being excited about the plane ride rather than fearful of it. So there's a lot of techniques there depending on the specific circumstance. But there is a lot out there. It just depends on the cause. 
Mm-hmm. I'd like to talk in more depth about acupuncture at some point because I it was something that was recommended to me when I was having fertility issues and I I never tried it and I looked at the evidence and I wasn't convinced that we had really well controlled studies to demonstrate that it wasn't more than placebo effect but it there's also a really interesting whole discussion about whether placebo effect is appropriate if it works in some cases. Exactly. I mean, I think it's going to be very hard to find a double-blind controlled placebo-controlled randomized study on, on stress. It's going to be next to impossible to do it. What I tell my patients when they ask me that same question is, no, there isn't a lot of compelling randomized studies that show it, but if you feel better and you enjoy it, go do it. If it is a chore, if it's you know a financial constraint and you dread it, don't do it. It sometimes comes down to something as simple as that, you know, placebo effect or not. If you enjoy it and it reduces your stress, you know, it doesn't matter what it is. That's a good thing to do. Yeah, that was the advice I got when I spoke with one of my scientific mentors about it. It's like, well, if it's a place where you relax and focus on you, then that works for you. But you get well, there's the financial part and the trade-offs and all that. But anyways, that's but that's mm-hmm. that. Yeah, we all have to have a an episode on placebo effect because it's a really fascinating and controversial area. For sure, especially in the area of menopausal medicine. Um, in a lot of the trials of whether hormone therapy works for XYZ, we always find a huge placebo effect. So it is real, and especially in menopausal medicine, it's a thing that needs to be considered whenever we do research. So. Maybe this is a silly question, but how do you know if something is working stress management wise, maybe ties into this placebo? How do you know whether to stick with some strategy and how do you know if you found the right strategy or or do you just work on, you know, if it feels better now, then that's the simplest way to go. I think if your symptoms, like I tell people to do a symptom diary, you know, a lot of times when people are experiencing things, symptom diaries are really helpful. What are the symptoms that are bothering you? When do you experience them? And you can follow those over time. And so if you decide, okay, I'm going to meditate 15 minutes a day. While you're meditating 15 minutes a day, keep that same symptom diary. And then after a month, take a look back and see if there's been any changes that's probably the most objective thing that you could do yourself mm-hmm. is monitor your own symptoms, keep a diary, and then just see if whatever intervention you're doing is actually helping. And of course, you know, asking yourself, well, how do I feel doing this? Am I enjoying this? Is, you know, do I think this is stupid or whatever? Your gut instinct is always a good source of this as well. But diaries are helpful and give you objective data. Now, I'd love to talk a little bit about good stress and why is it that, you know, things like there's some evidence behind sauna or cold therapy and exercise might be in that same category. So just teasing apart why stress can be good sometimes and bad sometimes. And Well, let's talk about stress with training, right? Mm-hmm. With physical training. That's good stress if the stress cascade, the hormonal cascade returns to normal and allows you to heal. Because when you push the limits, when the stress response is activated, you get that really good workout and you hit that personal record you're, you know, by necessity, tearing down muscle fibers, stressing them. And then when the stress response returns to normal, that's the time you heal and actually get fitter and get stronger. So good stress is stress that challenges your margins of fitness, but returns to normal, allowing recovery. Mm -hmm. So that's an example. Other good stress. If you love your work and love what you do, your long days may not be stressful. They may be invigorating. They might make you feel alive. And that's like a happy place, you know? Mm -hmm. So 
any kind of activation of your stress response likely will come back to the normal, you know, the normal baseline so that you could recover from your day simply because you're enjoying it. It's not a burden. But that same stressful day might, you know, send somebody over over the edge and result in, you know, God knows what. So those are some examples of good stress and how you can tell the difference. Now, I remember something from a previous conversation where you said working with someone who had a crazy busy life and was expecting kids and already had a big career and sort of didn't have time to manage stress. So what's your response to that sort of mindset that I'm too busy to do anything for extra that would help me with my stress? Nature wins in the end. <laughs> it always does. I always say this in my fertility life, nature always has the last word. These systems are so integrally programmed into our survival mechanism that it's just going to come back. You know, if you put it off, put it off, put it off, eventually the body's going to say, you know what, you're done. Whether it's an injury that takes you out, whether it's an illness that keeps you down, it's going to be something. So sure, we're all busy, but if you don't get that stress response back down to baseline where your body can heal and recoup, something's going to happen and your body's going to take you out of the game one way or another. I've seen that happen so many times. So what's sort of a baby step you could take without saying, I'm now going to find an hour a day to work out, or I'm now going to meditate an hour a day towards, you know, meaningfully improving the state of your body's stress? That's a great question. I just implemented this with another patient of mine who was a fertility patient. She got pregnant and then she came to me for coaching consultations during her pregnancy to help her keep on track with working out. And she is a very, very, has a high power job. In leading up to her delivery, she was trying to meet deadlines. She was trying to get done as much as she possibly could. And I'm like, look, you really, really got to manage this. I don't have time. Blah, 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 blah. So I said, look, here's what you're going to do. I want you to sit in your office and close your door and turn off your phone and just take 10 slow breaths. Just be mindful. Just think about the breaths. Think about nothing else and start with 10. That'll probably take maybe, God, a minute, two minutes. Anybody can do that anywhere. So that's where you start. And then maybe 10 breaths a day turns into a 15-minute meditation before bedtime. It just kind of starts to build the basic skills of turning your mind off and focusing on your body. So you can start with something as simple as that, and you might be surprised at how you feel after those 10 breaths. You might feel a little bit refreshed. Yeah, absolutely. Sometimes I deliberately take some time to do something relaxing like that, and I'm always surprised to realize what a different state that is that, oh, I really don't spend very much time in this state called relaxation. Right, right, exactly. I encounter it myself. Sometimes, you know, it'll be the weekend. It's like, am I just tired or is this what being relaxed feels like? I'm not quite sure. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. And uh, speaking of sleep, I'm actually planning to have an episode on that. But I think the idea of focusing your relaxation before bed can be a great investment because presumably it leads to better sleep, which is also a major stressor. Absolutely. Lack of sleep. Yeah. yeah. Lack of sleep is huge. Sleep is the time where the body does, you know, most of its repair. And if you're not getting that sleep and the body's not repairing, you know, that's just another example of not coming back to baseline. Mm -hmm. And so if you can't recover because you're not sleeping, when the next stressor comes, you're less equipped to deal with it. So, you know, 
when you talk about sleep hygiene, you know, if you read all of the, the blogs on sleep hygiene, you know, they say, turn off your phone an hour before bed, don't eat, you know, right before bed, all these things. Taking that time of mindfulness and meditation necessitates that you turn off your phone and that maybe you're not eating dinner before you step into bed. It's a really great way to start to improve your own sleep hygiene. Mm -hmm. And routine is good too. If you do that every single night before you go to bed, that routine is, your body likes routine and that can um, be very helpful. The last thing I was hoping to cover is a bit about how we study and how we measure stress and why it's perhaps more challenging than many people appreciate. It's challenging because it is very difficult to measure some of the biomarkers that are known to be correlated. I think the most notable one is cortisol. So cortisol is one of the main hormones in the cascade of the stress response. It's created by the adrenal gland in response to signals from the pituitary gland, uh, which hangs off the base of the brain. And so cortisol is just part of what ramps up the system to address the threat. And it isn't secreted uniformly over the day. It has to do with our circadian rhythms and more cortisol may be secreted at different points in the day for different people. And it's very hard to predict that. The gold standard for measuring cortisol is a 24-hour urinary cortisol. You collect urine for 24 hours and then they, uh, the lab processes that and measures the cortisol within it. That's the most accurate way we have it is not very practical to be measuring urine for 24 hours in, in the cortisol. Uh, so that's why it's tricky. There are some salivary cortisol levels that people will do multiple times a day. I'm not sure how well those have been shown to correlate with 24-hour urinary cortisol, but even that, you know, to be checking anything four times a day is, is can be very cumbersome. So that's part of what makes it tricky to study biomarkers and concrete things with the stress responses that it's hard to accurately measure them. Well, thank you. I'm actually curious in the world of menopause, there's a lot of tests that are not useful. Is there anything to call out here in terms of things that are overly hyped as useful tests for stress? I mean, cortisol for one, you know, you go to your doctor, if you ask them for a cortisol level, they're going to get like a blood draw and that's really not going to tell you anything. And a lot of doctors will just do it because their patients are pushing so hard. I want you to check my cortisol. And, you know, they're just like, okay, fine, I'll check your cortisol. But pushing to have things drawn may not give you an accurate depiction of what's really going on because because it is more tricky than that. The endocrine system is very, very tricky because it's hard to accurately measure a lot of these things and hormone levels change throughout the day and they're secreted in pulses or waves via the circadian rhythm. So it's hard to take one blood draw snapshot in time and say this is representative of the whole day when six hours later that hormone level could be very different. Yeah, I remember in our last conversation, you talked also about the issue of the streets and the houses of what's going on in the streets isn't necessarily representative of what's happening inside the cells. And so there's, there's not only the time component, but there's the inside the cells versus inside the circulation where you're getting the sample from. That's right. That's right. That's a whole other layer to it. The thing that is pervasive in endocrinology and these endocrine pathways are enzymes, which are proteins that convert hormones 
into different forms and derivatives. And that set of enzymes or proteins is different in every single tissue system in the body. So you may have your adrenal glands that have the predominance of one type of enzyme that converts you know, your estrogen to whatever, whereas in your brain, you may have a completely different set of enzymes that convert estrogen to whatever because that's important for the brain. And so by just checking what's going on in the circulation isn't going to give you what's going on in the tissues because what's going on in the tissues can be very different from one another. And in a different podcast, I heard you talking about how receptor levels can vary. And that can be, that's a whole other layer of the discussion that isn't, doesn't get enough attention. Yeah, it's a giant onion. Um, and we could just like keep unpeeling this onion for hours. But yes, the receptors are the proteins on the cells that receive the hormone signal. So mm-hmm. after the hormone is produced by the gland, travels through the circulatory system, it arrives at a tissue, then the enzymes act to metabolize it into whatever. And then that whatever has to bind to the receptors. Are the receptors there? Are they not? Different tissues have different receptors. So you know, the estrogen is going to behave differently in one tissue versus another. So Mm -hmm. yeah, it's layers upon layers upon layers of complexity that really makes the blood draw really inadequate in many cases when you're trying to figure out, you know, how to answer some of these questions. I guess the bottom line on testing is to be very careful about interpreting a single blood test in with hormones that have daily variation, which a lot of hormones do. Yes. And you need to do this with a professional that's trained to mm-hmm. interpret these test results. You know, mm-hmm. there's lots of direct to consumer products out there. You can basically get a hormone level and not have a doctor order it. You can get a whole panel, mm-hmm. but it's exactly what you said. Interpreting those tests can be very tricky. And so mm-hmm. you want to make sure that you team up with someone who's very skilled and experienced in interpreting these tests for whatever issue you're trying to solve. So I want to start wrapping up here and ask if you have any last final words of things that we didn't cover that you want to raise awareness around in terms of the importance of stress and the fact that it's really something that can be tackled and impactful. I think for midlife women, there was a really great study published in the journal Menopause in September of this year. It was about the menopausal experience and cortisol response. And so they were able to very effectively correlate cortisol levels, which is the major stress hormone with menopausal symptoms. And they proved or they showed that treating those symptoms actually reduced cortisol levels over a three-month period of time. And it didn't matter what they used to treat those symptoms. So these symptoms that women are having in midlife really do matter, and they really do impact overall health. And addressing those symptoms, whatever way is effective, is really, really important important for promoting a healthy stress return to baseline. And for younger individuals, you know, who may be training, you always want to look at, okay, am I fueling all of what I'm doing during the day, whether you're an athlete or whether you're a high powered executive, make sure that you're fueling enough during the day and not letting your body think that it's starving. That's the first place to look. Those would be my two big pieces of advice. Well, thank you very much for taking the time to explore this fascinating and important topic. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Are there any uh, resources, you know, your own blog, for example, that you want to put out a shout out? Sure, sure. So my blog is called Athletic Aging 
all one word, dot blog. And what I address on my blog is a lot of things that are pertinent to midlife women from strength and endurance training, I have a weekly workout that goes out every Monday. And then every other Thursday, I have a topic that is relevant, pertinent. It could be something in the medical literature, it could be something important for training, supplements, etc. You'll find it all on my blog there. All right. Well, thank you again. It's been a pleasure chatting with you. My pleasure. 